This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we love to bring you stories about music, sports, history, work, marriage, and every sphere of American life. We tell you good stories, redeeming stories, uplifting stories, and tough stories, too. And today, we hear from Jeff Katz. He's a radio host in Richmond, Virginia, and he's also a columnist for the Boston Herald. And here he shares his deeply personal story about his teenage daughter, Julia, who has what doctors call global developmental delays and disabilities. And all of that means is that she functions physically and mentally at the level of a toddler. Here's Jeff reading a note that he wrote to his daughter. Dear Julia, I'm writing you this note on March the 7th, 2018. Today is the day that you turn 15 years old. It's an interesting day for me and for mom, but it's another day for you. You're not like other kids, my sweet. You've never made a big deal of your birthday. You've never asked us for any type of a special gift. Not for your birthday, not for Hanukkah, not for Christmas. You've treated each and every day in the same way. Mom will wake you up and you'll have a smile on your face when you see her. She'll play some of your music and you'll smile even more. You may laugh or giggle or squeal, but there will not be any words. You won't complain about having to go to school. You won't be happy to hear that it is a snow day. You won't celebrate the fact that today is 15 years since you were born. Most 15-year-old girls would be thinking about clothing, college, or a car. By 15, many dads have already had to warn their daughters about some dopey boy. But today, you'll watch your favorite episode of Jack's Big Music Show, enjoy your cereal, and be on the lookout for cookies wherever you can find them. Mom and I know that you will be with us as long as we're alive. But we worry about what happens after we're gone. You have two wonderful brothers, and I pray every day that we have raised them well enough to know that they will need to look after you someday. You may be our middle child, but you'll always be the baby. Even as you get older, according to the calendar, as mom told me yesterday, you are timeless. You'll always be my pipsqueak, despite the fact that the years are flying by. No, we're not exploring potential careers or making plans for your wedding. We're still hoping that we'll be able to help you move from diapers to the potty someday. You live today the same way you did when you were about 18 months old. You don't speak, and you only recognize a few words, but oh, the words that you know. Kisses and cookies. No matter how filled up you are, there's always room for a cookie or two. You don't understand when I ask you how your day was but you become laser beam focused when you hear the crinkle of the wrapper on a package of something sweet. No matter how sweet that candy, it's still eclipsed by your genuinely sweet smile. So many people live their lives asking for things, demanding things, accumulating things. Most people never take the time to stop and savor a piece of cake or breathe deeply to appreciate a gentle breeze like you do. I hear people in this world use horrible, insulting language to describe kids like you, and I want to shake them, yell at them. 
Some mock disabled kiddos like you, and I feel like crying. You don't understand their words, but I do. Sometimes I really wish I did not. We never thought you would crawl, let alone walk, but you showed us. Your situation and challenges and disabilities have caused me to question my belief in God on some days and have served to strengthen it on others. You don't speak, but somehow you are able to brighten my days in ways that I never imagined. Without a single solitary word, you've made me a better man and touched countless people. Hearing you cry ties my stomach into knots, but your giggle is truly the happiest sound that I have ever heard. I know you'll never read this, nor would you understand this if I were to read it to you. So let me just say, kisses and cookies, Jules Bagools. I tell you today what I have told you on every March the 7th since 2003. Daddy loves you more than you will ever know. And thank you for that reading, Jeff. You've made me a better man, he wrote. Your giggle is the happiest sound I've ever heard. On Julia's unexpectedly learning how to walk, Jeff told the Boston Herald that, quote, it was one of the proudest days of my life, one of the happiest days of my life. But I also have to tell you, it's a terrifying situation because Julia is like a toddler. She has no real understanding of, oh, the stove is hot, or... I could fall here or trip you there. We're thrilled that she's trying to explore on her own a little bit, and we're terrified at the same time. And this is true for all of us parents, but even more so for Jeff and his bride. Jeff has said that it's tough to realize that he'll never get to embarrass Julia by dancing with her at her wedding. But, quote, she's the best thing that's ever happened to me. End quote. Last but not least, he said these words, quote, She's never spoken a word. She's never said a word to anybody. But she's touched more people in her 15 years on this earth than I ever have. Her joy is pure. To me, she's like the face of God. She's the essence of good, and she shares her joy with everybody. And to everyone out there who's in a similar situation, we share these thoughts. Share them to us. Share them with us here at OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Jeff Katz's story, his daughter Julia's, here on Our American Stories.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And now it's time for our This Day in History series, brought to us, as always, by the great folks at Hillsdale College, the best place in America to learn about our nation's history, the Constitution, great literature, and all the things that matter in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their terrific and free online courses at hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. And on this day in history, one of the most iconic classical musicians, Mstislav Slava Rostropovich, was born in Russia in 1927. And his story might be even more dramatic than his infamously dramatic music. Slava. The Russian word for glory. Glory for his music and glory for his story. One of the great conductors. He always tells me, you know, not everything is important. Uh, if you put everything, it gives importance to the public, then they will slowly, uh, you know, be tired. And then, but sometimes you have to let them go and let them be in their thoughts and get them relaxed and then stress the material that you really want to stress. Julian Lloyd Webber said he's the greatest ever. Here's one of the other all-time greats, Yo-Yo Ma, reflecting on being a 15-year-old listening to a 1961 recording of Slava's. That recording just made my hair stand on end. I, I couldn't sleep that night. I think it was the combination of energy and to a, a player, a cellist, a fellow cellist, the impossibility of what he was doing on the instrument. Beyond physical ability, there was a kind of willpower that was so grand and it is overwhelming. You know, this, it's kind of a, a reality distortion. You enter into that, uh, his sound world, or you see him in person, and something happens and you fall under the spell. Slava on how he cast that spell. I first make fire in my heart, in my body, because before I make a beat, I imagine this sound before I make a beat. He's a funny guy, Slava, because he was he was physically very awkward. 
And he himself used to say, you know, I real ugly guy. <laughs> but his hands were the most beautiful hands I've ever seen. They were long, they were wide, they were gorgeous. They were something that a painter might have, might have painted. Uh, and anything that had to do with his hands was gorgeous. A fellow Russian cellist said that these hands made the cello look and sound like a completely new instrument. Slava's innovations in technique in one lifetime by one man are equal to all of humanity's over several centuries. My mother carried me for 10 months. I tell mother, you have extra months. Why you not make for me beautiful face? And mother tell me, my son, I was busy with make to you beautiful hands. When Slava was 21 years old, he dropped out of university. He wasn't failing, he wasn't parting too much, or pursuing some great business idea. He was pursuing freedom, artistic freedom, in a country without. The Soviet regime forced his teacher, Dmitry Shostakovich, to leave the Moscow Conservatory. His crime? Producing music too chaotic, too innovative, at least for their brand of socialist realism. Their official statement declared that Stolstakovich had anti-democratic tendencies alien to the Soviet people. So in protest and in solidarity, Slava left too. He was a nobody then, so it didn't catch the Soviets' attention but he soon would, as a professional cellist and later as a conductor. What he gives to us in his music is what he terms, he called himself a foot soldier in the service of music, and I think of him in that sense, it would be the foot soldier reporting on the triumphs and tragedies of the world. Just two years later, at the age of 23, the Soviets awarded him with their Stalin Prize for his mastery of the instrument. and would later receive their highest distinction in all of the land, being named the People's Artist of the Soviet Union. He was a public figure now, and this would be a problem. In this moment, government come back and just closed my mouth and said, no, please not express something new. Slava's first expression as a public figure wasn't vocal at all. It was musical. It was this composition, Czech composer Antonin Dvorak's Cello Concerto in B minor, and Slava decided to perform it in London. But not just on any day. On the same day, the Soviets invaded Czechoslovakia to put an end to their democratic reforms. An invasion of 200,000 troops and 2,000 tanks. 72 people would die. As for Slava, to make sure his audience knew exactly what he was doing. After his performance, he stood up and proudly hoisted the Czech composer's score as a message of solidarity. And he
he wasn't finished. As an encore, he played a solemn Bach piece that he said he'd like to offer to those who were mourning. Let's just say those Soviets weren't thrilled. And this was nothing compared to what Slava would do next. And when we come back, more of this great story. This is our American stories. And by the way, our music stories are all over our website, and that's at ouramericannetwork.org. And this is the power of music. Uh, In the end, it's to move people and move nations. And it has tremendous, and it has always had, tremendous political power as well. Again, it's why dictators always, always want to control the artists and the storytellers. It's because in the end, those are the people who move a nation. And we saw it in Hitler's, in Hitler's Third Reich, how he commissioned the great artist to celebrate himself and punished any artist who wouldn't put himself at the center of all the art and all the work. And if you can, one of our favorite stories was the Armando Valladares story. And if you recall, if you didn't hear it, and again, go to ouramericannetwork.org, Armando Valladares, he was a poet and dissident in Cuba. And he went to prison because he wouldn't essentially say that Fidel Castro was his God. He had a different God. And he simply wasn't going to renounce his faith. And he went into a prison camp and stayed there a very long time and wrote poetry in his own blood on the skin of an onion. And ultimately, and fairly recently, the Beckett Fund awarded him the Canterbury Medal and Prize. And that's always for religious freedom. And so very often the artist, the poet, the musician, and my goodness, I think some people would even call Martin Luther King an artist. I know Bono felt that way enough so to write his favorite song about Martin Luther King in the name of love, pride. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. When we come back, more on the life of Slava Rostropovich. This is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we now return to our This Day in History series and our celebration of Slava Rostropovich's life on his birthday.
signed an open letter to the state-run newspaper Pravda, directly attacking the state censorship of art. Explain to me, please, why in our literature and art so often people absolutely incompetent in this field have the final word? There's the burn, and then came the meat of his message. Every man must have the right, fearlessly, to think independently and express his opinion about what he knows, what he has personally thought about and experienced, and not merely express with slightly different variations the opinion which has been inculcated in him. Let's just say they didn't run that letter. And this was all before Slava found this partner in crime. Since his body is doomed to die, his task on earth evidently must be of a more spiritual nature. It cannot be unrestrained enjoyment of everyday life. Here's Slava on this troublemaker. He was one of the greatest Russian writers. Yeah. Second Tolstoy, second Dostoevsky. Yeah. His name? Alexander Solzhenitsyn. A friend who was even more controversial than he was. And a friend without a home. Solzhenitsyn had served eight years in a labor camp for privately criticizing Stalin and then was sent into exile for life. His fortunes turned around when the next Soviet leader, Nikita Khrushchev, exonerated him and even authorized his book exposing Stalin's prison labor system. One day in the life of Ivan Denisovich. The moment it hit the streets, it was gone in an instant. But then Khrushchev was removed, and along with it, any semblance of hope that Solzhenitsyn could publish future works. The Soviets declared him a non-person. And after they stole one of his manuscripts, he went into hiding. In 1970, Slava took him in, saying, He was my friend. He had no place to go. That same year, Solzhenitsyn was awarded the Nobel Prize in Literature, but he could not personally receive it in Stockholm. He feared that he would not be let back into his home country. He was one of the only people willing to speak out, and speak out at the risk of his own life. In 1971, the KGB attempted to assassinate him with a biological agent, and they failed. And then in 1973 came his most famous work, a comprehensive look at the Russian prison system, the Gulag Archipelago, and it was the final straw. Solzhenitsyn banished from the Soviet Union. And Slava hosting Solzhenitsyn was the Soviet's last straw for him, too. Cancel my, my tour in the West in May 74. I go out from Russia alone, without my family. Why? Because Minister of Culture tell me I must go out. I will not utter one single lie in order to return, he said at the time. I would never see Russia and my friends again. The Soviets tried to make good on this. Four years later, they formally stripped Slava of his citizenship. He was wounded very deeply and stood up to it. Here Slava is speaking through a translator. 
Both myself and all my family remain Soviet citizens. Я хочу сказать, что я очень глубоко и искренне люблю свою родину и свой народ. And I'd also like to say that I love very deeply and very sincerely my country and my people. For Maestro, I'm sure it must have been incredibly difficult as a human being to suffer and not to be able to return to his homeland. And I think that made his art only more richer. I was born anew, Slava said at the time. I found a great deal more in music than I did when I lived in the Soviet Union. I re-examined everything, and I could see everything more vividly. All the composers, even Beethoven, came to mean more to me. And in 1977, Slava found his new place in the world, a place whose language he didn't know, Washington, D.C., as a celebrated music director and conductor of the National Symphony Orchestra. Washington loves celebrity, loves fame, loves glamour, and my goodness, he had that. And I think both Washington and Slava loved the fact that this escapee from communism was going to head the orchestra in the capital of the United States. Before the break, I want to read a little bit from Amway co-founder Jay Van Andel's book, An Enterprising Life where Alex first read about Slava Rostropovich. In 1982, as Amway was preparing to enter the European market, they decided to sponsor Slava's month-long tour of the continent with the National Symphony, Symphony Orchestra. And here's what Jay wrote about Slava and why they did it. Quote, Only in a free society can artistic talent like Slava's come to fruition and enrich the lives of each individual. A free enterprise economy can generate such that people can afford to buy the work of actors, artists, musicians. Talented people who cannot find enough buyers for their work will find, in a free economy, philanthropically-minded individuals to support their work. Socialism keeps everyone, except the political elites, at such a low standard of living that they cannot afford to support artists. By supporting the National Symphony Orchestra, Amway was acting in its role as an ambassador for free enterprise. We hope that everyone who sat in a European auditorium to hear the orchestra noted two things. First, Slava, an example of a man once oppressed by statism and now set free to use his abilities to the fullest. Second, funds made possible by the American free enterprise system working to promote those cultural events that make human existence more enjoyable. Mission accomplished. Amway has more than 250,000 distributors in Europe today. Spinning this virtual cycle of free enterprise all over again. And when we come back, the final chapter in this story of the life of Slava Rostropovich here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we return to the final portion of our This Day in History feature on Slava Rostropovich, who was born today in 1927, the Russian cellist and conductor who was banished from the Soviet Union for standing up for his artistic freedom and freedom writ large. First, for the freedom of his professors, then that of the Czech people, then his own, and finally his friend, Alexander Solzhenitsyn. When we left off, Slava finally found freedom in the United States of America, and artistic freedom as the music director and conductor of the National Symphony Orchestra. We probably could play the loudest of any orchestra and the softest of any orchestra, and this was what Slava demanded of us. He also demanded, everyone loosen up. He sometimes surprised his colleagues by pasting centerfolds from men's magazines into the pages of their scores. His mischievous sense of humor cut through the sobriety of the concert atmosphere. I think the most intimidating thing was in a rehearsal. And he would stop the entire orchestra and he would point to an individual player. Like to me, he's done this to me, I'm sure he did it to you. He would stop and he would say... This finger ain't no good. And he would show you on his arm, second finger much better. And you would think, oh my gosh, he's right. Until you pick up your pencil and you write a second finger over that F because you had played it with a first finger and it didn't work. And he had seen it and he had stopped the whole orchestra. And this is so embarrassing. And then he would back up four measures and we would play it again. And he would stare at you to see if you used the fingering that he told you to use. I've met probably 10,000 or 15,000 people who claim to be students of Slava. I mean, I, I sometimes had the feeling that if they were in the same room with him, they became a, a student. And he was able to express what he needed to uh, with his body, body language, with his facial expressions. He wanted it to be devastating, devastating. Frederick when you come in in the first movement of Tchaikovsky 6, after quiet bass clarinet, six women in front row must die of heart attack. He was trying to get across, you know, and he just couldn't get it across. And finally he said to the upper string, he says, you must play this like you have fork in brain. That got the point, just the image of that, like, got the point across. And immediately was there. Like one time, he, he said he wanted the symbol to sound like every glass in Washington D.C. would break at the same time. Every water glass, you know. He 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 would he was maybe over the top, but he got his point across. And ultimately, the the musical impact was there. newspaper the Washington Post wrote Rostropovich the man was as warm and generous as his artistry it was not unusual for him to leap from the conductor's podium after a particularly satisfying interpretation and hug and kiss every musician within reach he was shameless and an irrepressible flirt and a connoisseur of fine wine and drink 
a man who gulped vodka in much the same way and with much the same enthusiasm that a professional athlete might gulp Gatorade. And he was good copy for anyone who wanted to write about him, and so Time Magazine did, putting Rostropovitz on its cover, calling him the Magnificent Maestro. Slava lived more in one day than I live in 10 years. During his years of exile, Rostropovich often described himself as an ambassador of the Russian people. It's not the rotten government. And so when new Soviet President Mikhail Gorbachev pursued democratic reforms, Slava was there to welcome him, joining President Ronald Reagan at a White House meeting in 1987. And then in 1989, this happened. I'm Peter Jennings in New York just a short while ago. Astonishing news from East Germany, where the East German authorities have said, in essence, that the Berlin Wall doesn't mean anything anymore. The wall that the East Germans put up in 1961 to keep its people in will now be breached by anybody one who wants to leave. Dancing everywhere, East and West joining in a celebration of a united future. As quickly as he could, Slava flew to Berlin, cello in hand, and played an impromptu concert at the scene. Slava chose one of Bach's solo suites, a work he said that at the age of 70 he had taken up for the first time because I now had balance at my disposal for the first time. why do you go so fast you are uh, you're not a young man anymore but uh, I want you to be healthy but but you still travel enormously and even more now I say that's right even more now because like a sportsman who runs a marathon in the end I have to run faster Only a few months later, Slava's citizenship was restored. And he wasted no time. The very next month, he took the National Symphony Orchestra to Moscow in Leningrad, now St. Petersburg. I think bringing an American orchestra, playing their music, Russia, Kofiev, Tchaikovsky, and Shostakovich, bringing their music over and playing it with his interpretation with an American orchestra, that's a big deal. Even the rehearsals in Moscow leading up to the concert were a big deal. For Slava, and especially for the Russian people. He had not been able to sleep, so he went out in the street, and he was walking down the street, and it's like 5 o'clock in the morning, and some old lady is out sweeping the sidewalk or shoveling the snow, because it was the middle of winter. And she stopped, and she said, Slava Rostropovich? And he said, yes. And she said, I thought you were dead. It's a miracle. And, and they all treated him like it was a miracle that we were there, that he was there, that he was alive, that he was still playing, he was still conducting. Even just the dress rehearsal, and they allowed the audience into the dress rehearsal. And in the back of the hall in the Moscow Conservatory, I mean, there's the nice seats up front, but in the back, it's just these benches, like I'm sitting on here, these hard benches. And maybe there's supposed to be five people in one bench, and there'd be like 12 people just jammed in there like sardines, and they had all paid their five rubles, and they were going to see this if it was the last thing. And you just looked at them, and you saw how desperate they were, and you realized he wasn't kidding. It really was like life and death to them. 
and, and they brought these flowers, bouquets of flowers, and they come up to the podium afterwards and they put these flowers. And it was like somebody died. There was this mountain of flowers on the podium after the concert. For his final encore, Slava chose this American classic, John Philip Sousa's Stars and Stripes Forever, the traditional finale of the National Symphony's annual 4th of July concert on the West Lawn of the Capitol. The Moscow audience, you can hear clapping and standing in ovation. Later, amidst bear hugs and vodka toasts at a post-concert reception, Slava was asked why he picked Stars and Stripes Forever. The idea, he said, came from the heart. Mistivlav, Slava, Rostropovich, forever a Russian, forever an American dreamer. And what a great piece. And Greg, as always, does such a great job, Alex, bringing it home. And what were a couple of things? I know when you're doing a piece like this, Alex, there's always something you you wanted to put in, you didn't put in. One or two things? Yeah, a couple of things. I mean, you could hear his friendship with Solzhenitsyn. And one of the, when he visited the Berlin Wall, he said, we should really build a statue here to this man. It just wasn't me. It was Solzhenitsyn. And then in 1993, during the siege of the Russian White House, which many people remember, they're achieving democratic reforms and those communist hardliners are fighting back. Slava happened to be in in Russia touring again with the National Symphony, and he planned to give a free concert in Red Square. And it was originally just planned as a gesture to music lovers who couldn't fit in those smaller indoor concerts. But because of what was going on, there was 100,000 people there at that concert. You see a classical music concert. And Slava said of it, Russians need to be reminded that at times like this, they are a great people. Events disrupt, disrupt things a, a little sometimes, but listening to this music is a reminder that there's a great nation here. Well, what a great story. And go to ouramericannetwork.org, grab this, share it with friends, by the way. You know, as we're hearing a lot about what folks think about America and the American flag, I always love asking immigrants what they think. Russians, Ethiopians, Nigerians... Uh, from all over the world, we heard Frank Capra, of course, on July 4th and what he thought, Italian immigrants. And you don't hear much, well, let's just say there's not a lot of protest theology around those folks. Because they've lived somewhere else. And they know what it's like to live under dictatorial powers. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. I don't know what to say. Slava. That's it. His life story. And... I just love that kind of storytelling. Thanks so much, guys, for all you do, and gals, because Faith has joined our team. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories, where we love to tell stories about people from all walks of life. 
Our executive producer, Jesse Edwards, brings us the story of a professional prankster whose favorite target was the national news media. Today's liberated woman can be summed up or epitomized as a braless vegetarian with hairy legs and armpits. <laughs> and that's the one and only Alan Abel, prankster, hoaxer, hacker, and proud purveyor of fake news. He was responsible for duping the media into fabricated press conferences, faking his own death, and starting media campaigns for imaginary organizations like Cinna, the Society for Indecency to Naked Animals. <laughs> we'll get to that later, but first, you really gotta hear this guy in action. Posing as a man named Jim Rogers, media hoaxer Alan Abel founded a fake organization called Citizens Against Breastfeeding that sought to abolish this supposed act of immorality. He claimed that breastfeeding would lead to drug use later in life. Here he is on live television, arguing on behalf of a totally made-up topic. Should women be allowed to breastfeed in public? One of our guests tonight says absolutely not. Jim Rogers is the East Coast spokesman for Citizens Against Breastfeeding. And Leslie Burby is the vice president of ProMom. So Jim, let's start with you. What's wrong with breastfeeding in the open? Is it too sexy? Our position is, after 22,000 respondents have been interviewed using primarily the Minnesota Malaphasic Personality Profile, many youngsters grow up to become, shall we say, uh, antisocial because of the long breastfeeding period when they are addicted to the mother's breast and they have this oral gratification need that manifests itself into smoking, drinking, and in one instance, Monica Lewinsky, who was breastfed until she was four years old. Leslie, do you have uh, any reaction to what Jim is saying? Well, with due respect, um, had I known that Jim was going to be on the show, I don't know that I would have agreed to appear. And here's another example of the kind of shenanigans that Alan Abel could execute. He managed to gather all of the news people in New York City to a fake press conference about a fictitious lottery winner. They threw dollar bills out of a hotel window, served champagne, and even hired an actress to play the part of the supposed $35 million prize winner. Every TV news station and newspaper in the city showed up and covered the faux news in full detail. Her name is Charlie Taylor, and tonight the 30-year-old cosmetologist is the single winner of the $35 million lottery jackpot. Lucky Charlie showed News 4's Howard Thompson a photocopy of that winning ticket. 30-year-old Charlie Taylor has probably given her last manicure and facial. The Dobbs Ferry cosmetologist is the lucky winner of last night's $35 million lottery. Still giddy, the reality of her new life has not yet set in. <laughs> I flipped. I freaked. It's great. It's great. Was there any particular method that you chose in, in picking those particular numbers? No, I... I, <laughs> I it's a funny thing, I had a dream. You had a dream about the numbers? Yeah, yeah, I had a dream. So that's what made me pick the numbers. The news media didn't even catch on to the fact that the entire event was a ruse until days later, forcing reporters all over the country to make retractions on the air. The event even made it as far as the desk of Tom Brokaw. Everyone loves a winner, of course. By now, lotteries are old news in this country, but big winners, well, they still attract a lot of attention. And when the news got out that a New York woman had won a fortune in the state lottery, reporters were all over the story. And what a story it was. 
In 1987, Alan Abel created a fake Iranian arms merchant who supposedly made $6 million in a commission on the sale of U.S. arms to Iran. He then arranged the press conference that was attended by all of the major media. The story was never questioned, and it wound up on the national news. And in the rush of events in the Iran scandal, a strange story in New York today. I received $6 million for my participation in uh, this affair. Mehdi Bahramani. He says he's an Iranian who made $6 million on the sale of U.S. arms to Iran, and he wants now to give it back. So far, we've only heard three of Alan Abel's elaborate media hoaxes. There are many others to get to, and some that we just can't because we don't have enough time. It's a testament to just how many hoaxes he pulled off over the years. He is relentless. The amount of time, energy, and dedication that it takes to pull off just one of these stunts is remarkable. It's one thing to book a fake interview on the news. Just about anybody could do it. It takes a completely different breed of animal altogether to book the interview, show up in person, look down the barrel of a TV camera, and say that you think that the mother-child bond during breastfeeding is somehow an immoral act. This guy is on a whole nother level. But why does he do it? His years of tireless dedication to his craft of tomfoolery certainly hasn't made him rich or famous. Why would he go through such lengths just to get one over on the media? While literally marching to the beat of his own drum on a street corner, Alan Abel himself tells us why he does what he does. I like to think of my hoaxes as having a message. And I also feel kind of comfortable with the idea that it's an opportunity for me to perform. I'm a performer, I'm a writer, I direct, I do a lot of things, but the opportunities to perform are limited. The talk shows, the radio, television, newspaper interviews, it's a conduit to my audience, the public. Here's another one of the many media stunts that got Alan national news attention. He conned the national media into believing a story about a kid selling off body parts to pay off his student debts. It is a decision most of us probably could not even imagine, selling a lung or a kidney for money to live. A man so desperate, so in need of money, that he's putting his body parts up for sale. He says he's a college graduate who's been out of work over a year, is 15 grand in debt, and is about to be kicked out of his apartment. I was just going over trying to figure out what do I have of value. I don't have a car. And out of all the things I own, this is pretty much the most valuable thing I have. And you think your reasoning is that you own these organs and therefore you should be allowed to sell them? Well, I think so. Tom won't give out his last name or any other information because he says what he's doing is illegal. Well, that's what I've been told, but I might be able to work around it by doing it as a non-returnable loan. And again, days later, journalists all over the country began to realize that they'd been had. That 28-year-old who offered to sell a kidney or lung for $25,000 had no intention of parting with either. It turns out he was an actor just playing a part. A veteran media hoaxer, Alan Abel, has owned up to orchestrating the scam. And that's just the tip of the iceberg in the prankster story of Alan Abel. When we come back, some of his best hoaxes ever perpetuated on live TV. Don't go anywhere. This is Our American Stories.
is Our American Stories, and we continue with the story of professional prankster Alan Abel. Let's get back to Jesse. Newspaper columnist Phil Reisman remembers his early days in journalism and his dealings with Alan Abel. One day, he took the bait by accident after finding a sensational advertisement in the back of a newspaper. Alan Abel was my first real lesson in journalism, I can tell you that. I was in in desperate uh, need and want of a byline. I wanted to get a story in this paper. And I remember, I don't know how how I uh, actually found out about this. I might have been just perusing the white pages of the Manhattan phone book. Just by accident, I found an entry called Omar's School for Beggars. Now I have with me this evening Mr. Omar. Omar is the founder and owner of Omar's School for Begging, which is an institution that teaches the fine art of creative panhandling which I thought, this is unbelievable. And this is like in the 70s when people were really out of work and it was like, you know, the city was, uh, New York City was in a drop-dead mode from Gerald Ford, you know. Um, there were homeless people everywhere. So I thought, well, this, this is really amazing and, and probably fits into what's going on right now in the world. There's no help for people in this position. There's a broad spectrum of America that is faced with this problem. I mean, there are hundreds of thousands of men who have served loyally for years and years to their companies, been put out on the streets. They're garbage. I bought it hook, line, and sinker, and I wrote the story about this guy who runs his panhandler school. Here is Omar. Welcome. Years went by, and I began to realize that he was pulling this hoax over and over and over again to other people. And I, I started saving clips, and I had built up a file on Abel. I said, this guy, i got to watch for him. It was incredible how he repeated the same hoaxes over and over and over again, even though they would be exposed, and then he would do it again. Perhaps Alan Abel's most famous media hoax over the years was his campaign to put clothes on animals through the Society for Indecency to Naked Animals, or Senna for short. In 1959, Abel wrote a satirical story about this imaginary organization for the Saturday Evening Post, but editors rejected it. So he then transformed his story into a series of press releases that garnered media attention. The group used the language and rhetoric of moralists for the aim of clothing naked animals, including pets, barnyard animals, and large wildlife. Slogans such as, decency today means morality tomorrow, and a nude horse is a rude horse were offered. Abel persuaded the actor Buck Henry to play the group president, G. Clifford Prout, Abel played the group vice president. The Society to Clothe All Naked Animals for the Sake of Decency, or SINA, S-I-N-A. SINA received so much press. It was much ado about nothing in my own mind. But it, it's kind of like, uh, maybe this is not a good analogy, but it's kind of like someone who drops a match and suddenly you have a, a, a forest fire. A flood tide of filth is engulfing our country in the form of newsstand obscenity. It was a a commentary on censorship. If we're going to censor books in the library that might seem salacious, then uh, why don't we uh, censor those animals who are out there being naked? And that's what allegorical satire is all about. But it was very well done, too well done, because it obscured that message. I don't think anybody got it. Promoting Cinna gave me the understanding that with very little funds and uh, very few props, with a straight face, you can convince America and the media that you have this 
crazy movement. Apparently, a lot of people failed to realize that this was all just a bunch of nonsense. Some subscribed to the newsletter, opening local chapters all over the country of moral activists who thought it was a good idea to put pants on a horse. <laughs> Not everyone caught on to the joke. I like to think that poking fun uh, at something is really just a cover. It's just the, the skin, uh, the surface. Underneath that surface or skin is a message, a moral message. In the case of Sinna, right away it's contradictory because we're for it in the title, and yet I was against it. So that's a clue that there must be something wrong here, that it could be a joke. Another one of Alan's bizarre pranks on national TV was when he paid a group of actors to attend a taping of the Phil Donahue show back in the 1980s and pretend to faint. It was a great sight that night on the news because the headlines in the newspapers were Audience Flees Donahue Show. It was live television with a fastly fading studio audience for the Phil Donahue Show today. Combination of the lights, the possible anxiety of uh, the t live television, and the heat uh, caused one woman to faint. And then four others fainted. People started to figure out who Alan Abel was and some weren't too happy about his trickery. Messages for whoever is running this organization. Your organization is considered born on the shores of ignorance, and your group is fed by the spoon of stupidity. You guys are the biggest bunch of sick morons I have ever met in my life. Um, I think all of you need long psychotherapy. Bye. Some people were sick of it, and the news media was beginning to get tired of it as well. At that time, in the early 70s, the media was more considerate of practical joking and utilizing the media as a conduit to the public. But as the years went by and the competition got greater, the news got more serious and the pressure was on to come up with hard news factually, quickly, there was no time to fool around or play around. So the breed of reporters who came out of the 80s and 90s were guys and gals who just uh, didn't want to have fun. No way. With the people in the media getting wiser, a guy like Alan Abel just doesn't stop. He went on to act in daytime TV shows like Mari Pulvich and Jerry Springer at the time. In the documentary about his life called Cain Raising Abel, Alan's own daughter narrates what life was like living with a guy like this for a father. Can you imagine being this trickster's kid? You are trying to tell me that that child has eaten nothing, nothing but hair? One time he even dragged me along on one of his appearances. He was posing as Dr. Herbert Strauss, a firm believer in the notion that people should consume human hair because it's high in protein. Jennifer, do, would you like a hair sandwich? He tried to get me to eat a hair sandwich on camera, but I refused, even though we had been rehearsing it for weeks, and I knew there was hair in only one side of the bun. It was actually my mom's hair inside the sandwich. What does it taste hair? like? Uh, it just, just it tastes uh, a bit like uh, a hamburger. Even though my dad enjoyed doing these types of TV appearances, he wanted to keep pulling off his own pranks. This is a hair pie made from a dark-haired woman. But it wasn't always about national attention and elaborate hoaxes that kept Alan's wheels turning. There's a video of him online on local cable access TV for over 20 minutes going on about the history of the world as told through the snare drum. Here's a small piece of that speech. My name is Alan Abel, and I would like to tell you about the relationship of the snare drum and its effect on civilization today. Many people have asked, where did this drum really come from? Well, last year, an archeologist friend of mine went to Egypt and after poking among the pyramids for over six months, he discovered that this particular drum actually came from a music store 
in Greenwich, Connecticut. However, the drum does date back to the year 4000 BM, which of course is before Madonna. Now in that year, we had cavemen who used to use the drum as a means of communication. They would first of all cut down a tree, hollow out the log, cover the end of that log with the skins of neighboring tribes, and then beat on the end of that log with an arm or a leg from one of the tribes. And of course, we developed our first log rhythms that way. Now, we would have one tribe talk to another tribe by using a drum book. They actually had a drum book. For example, let's have a woman in a tribe over here who wants to talk to a lady in a tribe three miles away. She would look up her number in the drum book and it might be three, two, one, roll twice. So she would send the number. Her friend would hear the, the number on the drum and know that she was wanted on the drum. On January 2nd of 1980, both the New York Times and the New York Daily News reported the death of the famous media hoaxer, Alan Abel. The Times provided a flattering account of his career. Unfortunately for these papers, there was a small problem. Abel was very much alive. The newspapers learned this when Abel held a press conference the next day in which he revealed that the news of his death was a hoax engineered by himself and a team of 12 accomplices, some of whom had sent the false story to the media while others had acted to confirm it. Abel explained that he perpetuated the hoax for publicity specifically to publicize the fact that he was a professional hoaxer. And that, my friends, is the one and only Alan Abel. Marching to the beat of his own drum, he's dedicated his entire life to pranks, hoaxes, and fake news, doing it better than perhaps anyone else, just for kicks. I can't think of a better way to spend a life well-lived. Can you? VD has reached epidemic proportions. Ten cents is a small price indeed to pay for this sanitary sanctuary. A private John in public. This is Our American Stories. I'm Jesse Edwards. This is Our American Stories, and it's time for another On Leadership story, this time with the first Marine to ever be the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Peter Pace. The third of four kids of an Italian immigrant Brooklyn, New York family, Pace graduated from the Naval Academy in 1967 and soon found himself leading a platoon in the middle of the Tet Offensive during the Vietnam War. After a distinguished career in and out of combat, Pace retired in 2007 as a four-star general. He then did what so many great old Marines do. They try to help the young ones coming up. We're going to listen in on General Pace's talk with third-class midshipmen at the Naval Academy. These are 19-year-olds 
But Annapolis, along with other service academies and some standout civilian universities like Hillsdale, takes the moral formation of its students very seriously. And so naturally, Pace began his talk with the young midshipmen with a story from back when he was in their shoes. But when I was a third-class mid, don't know why, but both of my roommates decided they were going to start smoking pipes. I watched this for about a week, and I wanted to be part of the family, so to speak. So I went down to the mid-store, bought a pipe. It was $5.50. I paid for it with a $10 bill. There were no credit cards back then. I went back to my room, and I sat there for about two or three days looking at this pipe and saying to myself, why are you doing this? You don't even like to smoke. So I took the pipe back down to the mid-store and was going to trade it back in for my $10 bill, right? I don't remember all the specifics. I should, but I don't. But for some reason, while I was down there, I decided I'm going to keep it. So I go back to my room. Two days later, I get called down to the commandant's office. And he says to me, you have been accused of stealing a pipe from the midshipman store. Because there were no receipts, because we didn't do business then like we do now, I had no way of proving that, yes, I had been in the midshipman store with the pipe in my hand. Yes, I had walked out without paying for it that day, but I had paid for it three days before. I was, I mean, my stomach was a wreck. My brother was in the class of 65. And he came to me and he said, Pete, I love you. If you stole that pipe, you have got to stand up and admit it. And if you did not steal that pipe, then you need to stand your ground and I'm with you. I really do not know how this thing might have turned out except for what happened the day after. One of my classmates was a guy named John Griffin. He was our third class company commander. And John saw that I was upset and said to me, what's the problem? And I told John that I'd been accused of stealing a pipe. And he said, you mean the pipe that I saw you with? And he mentioned the day before the day that I supposedly stole it. And I said, John, are you sure that you saw me with that? And he said, I'm positive because we were doing this. We were studying for this, this test. Da, 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 da. John went and saw the company officer, told them what he had seen. I was exonerated. But there was about a month of my life where I really thought that I was going to be shown the door because I had no way to prove myself. Pace then carried the lessons from that month through to the rest of his career. As a result of that, quite honestly, I've been more lenient on more people than I should have been. 
every time some PFC stood in front of me and swore up and down that he didn't do whatever it was he didn't do, I tended to believe him. I'm not sorry I did. Because when you're a leader, you can always show some leniency. If they deserve to be shown the leniency, you'll feel great about having been the leader who gave it to them. And if they don't deserve to be shown the leniency, they'll show themselves again, and you can kill them then. And great advice. After graduating from the academy, Pace quickly found himself leading a platoon of Marines in Vietnam in the middle of the Tet Offensive. And there, something else happened that also shaped his career and his life. We were on patrol. And an incredible young Marine named Lance Corporal Guido Farinaro from Bethpage, New York, 19 years old, born in Italy, naturalized citizen of the U.S., was shot by a sniper right in the chest. I was holding Guido when he died, and I was absolutely enraged. Now, I had heard all the stories about people supposedly cutting off ears and doing things in combat that, you know, weren't right. And I knew, I knew I would never allow myself or any of my Marines to ever do anything immoral or unethical in combat. When Guido died, I was enraged. I called in an artillery strike on the village from which the sniper round was fired. It takes a little while between the time you call for fire and you get it. During that time, my platoon sergeant, who was an E-5 sergeant, but he was on his second tour in Vietnam, didn't say anything to me. He just looked at me. I could tell by the way he was looking at me that what I was doing was wrong. I mean, it just confirmed what I already knew in my heart of hearts. I called off the artillery strike before it was fired. We did what we should have done in the first place, which was to sweep through the village on foot. Go figure, we found nothing but women and children. I don't know how I could live with myself if we had done what I almost did. The point is, the time to set your moral compass is not when your best buddy gets shot, is not when your women get shot down. You will be morally challenged when you are least emotionally prepared to deal with it. Every day since, I have thought about who I am. I got my platoon together that day and apologized to them for almost doing what I almost did. And then every day since then, I have just thought through what's going to happen today that might be a moral challenge, an ethical challenge. 99.9% of the time, the things I could think of never happened. But it got me into a routine of thinking about who I am so that when things that I hadn't thought about happened, I was able to take the two to three seconds, that's all it takes, the two to three seconds to think about, is this who I am, before executing? And when we come back, we're going to hear more from this remarkable speech, General Peter Pace, 
sharing stories from his life. I mean, these are confessionals of a sort. I mean, he was a hair trigger away from killing a whole lot of innocent people because he was just ticked off. And so setting your moral compass, we can all hear words of wisdom like that. And by the way, we all need a sergeant like that who just stares at us. And by the way, that sergeant was going up against a higher rank. He wasn't saying anything, but he was through his silence and through his stare. And we all have that opportunity with our bosses, with people we know and care about. More on leadership. General Peter Pace's stories here on Our American Stories. And this is Our American Stories. We return to General Peter Pace's talk at Annapolis with 19-year-olds. And not many 19-year-olds are hearing this message, let alone having everything that's happening around them reinforcing this message. And where we left off, Peter Pace had just told a remarkable story about, well, a couple of stories actually about events that changed his life. And... Of course, not all moral courage is about restraint. Sometimes it's about making the decision that's right for your subordinates, but possibly is hazardous to your career. Here's Pace telling a story from the 1980s when he was commanding about a 1,000 Marines. When I was Lieutenant Colonel Battalion Commander, my battalion was was afloat aboard ship. We were off the Philippines, and we got word that the U.S. Embassy wanted my Marines to come ashore and be part of a parade for President Marcos. The island on which they were going to have the parade was a known island of violence, a lot of insurgents. I said, okay, we can do this, but we're coming in with ammunition because I'm not going to have my mortars, my machine guns, my rifles, and most importantly, my Marines, challenged while they're in this parade by insurgents. The word came back. They said, oh, no, you can't do that. You cannot march past President Marcos with ammunition. And my answer back was, okay, we're not going to march past President Marcos. This became a very, very sensitive subject. Messages going back and forth. And I refused to put my Marines ashore. We went back to Okinawa from once we'd come aboard ship. And when I got off ship, I got word that the uh, division commander wanted to see me right away. So I'm thinking to myself, okay, lieutenant colonel, 16 years of service, four to go to retirement. Uh, Now what? What am I going to do next, right? (laughs) I was okay with my decision but I didn't know whether or not the division commander was. So I walked in and report to him, Major General Glasgow. I walk in and report, and Sir Lieutenant Colonel Pace reporting is ordered. He looks at me and says, Pete, I'm proud of you. <laughs> I didn't know if it was going to be Pete, you're fired, or what are we going to be, okay? But it reinforced for me, again, I didn't do that lightly. 
I didn't do it glibly. I thought about it a lot, real hard. I mean, there's other times when I thought about things really hard and done it wrong. You owe yourself as a leader to think about things the best you can and get to the best clarity you can and then make your decision and live with it and be comfortable in your own skin. Being comfortable in your own skin, that's a tough one when you're making tough decisions like these with so many people's lives on the line. And of course, the higher up in rank one goes, the more complicated and consequential these decisions become. Pace then told the midshipman a story from when he was a one-star brigadier general in the early 1990s. I get a call from the Commandant of Marine Corps saying, hey, uh, First Marine Division is going to go to Somalia. They don't have an assistant division commander. General Wilhelm is division commander. wants you as his deputy. Can you go? So I went, and we go ashore. The port of Mogadishu is really very small. We had three pre-positioned ships with the equipment and one small port that could take one ship at a time. So the ships are coming in and out and they're putting stuff on the, uh, on the uh, deck and, putting, and taking what they need. And because the port itself was so small, you couldn't leave stuff out. You had to put it all back. Whatever you didn't use, you put back on the ship. It went back out. The next ship came in. We're about to go attack a warlord's compound. He has T-55 tanks. Now, if T-55 tanks are significant if you're wearing nothing but your uniform, but kind of pieces of trash if you happen to have your nice M1A1 tank. And you can stand off and take shots with your M1A1 all day long and kill T-55s before they get anywhere near where they can shoot. So we're feeling pretty good about this. General Wilhelm sitting in one chair, and General Pace is sitting in another chair, and we're being briefed, and all of a sudden, the captain, tank, company commander says, excuse me, the main gun, tank ammo, got sent back out to sea. This is the night before an attack. So I'm sitting there, and I always, I have kind of a strange sense of humor anyway. And, I mean, it was dead silence, and you could just see General Wilhelm. His jaws were getting... I mean, you could tell he was about to go eat something. (laughs) And I looked at him, and I kind of smirked, and I said, we should do this without ammo. Put yourself in the warlord's position. Do you think that he thinks that we're stupid enough not to have ammo? Wilhelm, who was, went from being totally pissed to being hysterical, says, you're right, but now that we've had our yucks, we're saying, okay, fair enough, this is going to work, but just in case he doesn't believe that we actually have ammo, you know, we need to make sure we've got Cobra gunships and all that stuff stacked up. So the ethical part of this was making sure we, in fact, protected PFC pace, but the decision part of it was, we need to do this, and we can do this, and nobody would think we're that stupid. So we were that stupid, and we got away with it. (laughs) Having shared some personal stories from throughout his four decades in uniform, General Pace then gave these midshipmen some advice for their careers. Grow where you are planted. You're going to get a chance two plus years from now, 
to put in your request for what you want to do next. Some of you are not going to get your first choice. The Marines and the sailors who are looking to you don't care whether it's your first choice or your 12th choice. They need you and they deserve from you that you be the best leader you can possibly be for them. I promise you, if you will ask for and fight for what you want in an assignment and then go do whatever you're told to do like it was your first choice, you will always get another great job as a follow-on job. Why? Because there are more great jobs than there are great people. You can drive yourself nuts worrying about what somebody two or three levels above you is doing that's not right. And there's not a darn thing you can do about that. So my recommendation to you is stay in your lane. And an officer's lane, in my opinion, is what he or she is responsible to do and an understanding of what your boss and their boss are doing and an understanding of what your first subordinate and their first subordinate are doing. If you will focus on that bandwidth and operate as best you can every day in an ethical, moral way with integrity, your, in the case of Marines, your 40 Marine platoon will very quickly become a 200-man company, will very quickly become a 1,000-man battalion because you're focused on the things that you are responsible for and over which you have some ability to have impact. And what great advice that applies to everything in life. Grow where you are planted, the general was telling these 19-year-olds. And there are more great jobs than great people. So true. Don't be in a rush. That was another one I loved. A great coach of mine said, don't be the boy in the rush. Stop rushing. And that's very little difference in that than grow where you are planted. Slow down, make the best of your situation, and learn right here. And by the way, one last story that would probably embarrass General Pace a bit. He's certainly not the sort to push this story himself. After his retirement ceremony at Fort Myer in Virginia on October 1st, 2007, General Pace went to the Vietnam Veterans Memorial in Washington, D.C. By the way, we did too. We sent our Hillsdale students there. And you can go to our website. It was a special Memorial Day celebration. And they talked to folks in front of that memorial, one of the most beautiful memorials in all of Washington, D.C. But Pace went to that memorial, the striking black wall engraved with the names of 58,307 Americans who paid the ultimate price in Vietnam. And onto each 3 by 5 piece of paper, he pinned his four stars, metal representations of his rank, his career, and his code of honor. And again, each of these 3 by 5s was for men who died in his platoon in Vietnam. On those cards, he wrote, These are yours, not mine, exclamation point. With love and respect, your platoon leader, Pete Pace. And there you have it, Peter Pace's story, 
to the third-class midshipmen at the U.S. Naval Academy. In a way, their stories, too, all the fallen men's stories in Vietnam. This is Our American Stories. Stories. 